living in the afterglow of last weekend and Christmas at Crossroads. And if you were not able to be present for one of those five worship services last weekend, I want to recommend that you get a copy of the DVD. It was an experience that I can only compare to what it must be like to visit heaven for about 75 minutes. Nearly 6,400 people, including many, many guests, were so well served by something like 800 different people. Some were instrumentalists, about 85 instrumentalists, 160 vocalists, 130 child care workers, 300 greeters and hospitality workers and ushers. It was a real labor of love on the part of our congregation, for our congregation and our community. And the Lord's favor was all over it last weekend. So, to you who were involved in any way, maybe you helped to build the set. Maybe you were serving hot chocolate, hot cider out in the atrium. Maybe you were involved in the picture-taking out in the atrium. Thank you. Thank you sincerely for what you did. And this weekend we're looking at a third snapshot of what we know of the life of Jesus from the eyewitness account of Luke. Now so far we have seen his family of origin, his nuclear family, that was two weeks ago. And last weekend, Christmas at Crossroads, we looked at Jesus as an infant. Now today, we want to look at the word picture of Jesus as a boy. Now, all good parents like to take pride in the accomplishments of their children. As they mature, we're especially proud if they excel in a certain area like music or athletics. And if children excel academically, you're likely to see a sticker on the back window of a soccer mom's van that says something like, my child is an honor student at such and such school. Or maybe it, it's a bumper sticker that says, proud parent of an honor student. I see more of these all the time. But don't you think that sometimes we overestimate the abilities of our precious children just a little bit? When we compare them to these real-life boy geniuses, the first one I don't have a picture of. His name is Sean Louis Cardiac. He was born in France in the 18th century. He was known as the Wonder Child. He could recite the alphabet at three months, at four years. He could read Latin and translate it into English and French by age six. He could read Greek and Hebrew. But he died in Paris at age seven, so we don't have a picture of him. I know how he died, though. He fried his brain. That's what he did. <laughs> Got some pictures of these others. These others. Uh, Christian Frederick Heineken, born in Germany, knew all the principal events of the Bible by age one. At age three, he was conversant in world history and geography. The king of Denmark in 1724 actually sent for him to confirm the stories about this child's extraordinary abilities. You'll recognize this next one, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. At four, 
he began violin lessons. At five, he composed minuets. At six, he was a virtuoso on the violin and the harpsichord, wrote his first symphony at age eight. At 12, he wrote two operas and a mass, and he's still regarded as one of the world's supreme geniuses. Now, here's another one, Truman Henry Safford, the son of a Vermont farmer. He had amazing calculating abilities by age three. He studied at age seven, he studied geometry and algebra. At nine, he wrote and published an almanac, and he graduated with honors from Harvard at age 18. Now, this guy, William James Sidis, six months, he knew his ABCs. At age two, he was reading adults' books, not children's books, but adults' books. He entered Harvard at age 11, where he also lectured as a student to the Mathematical Society. And then this guy, Kim Ung Yong. He was born in 1962 in Korea, talking at five months, writing at seven months, at four, four years old, he was fluent in English, Japanese, Korean, and German, and he was solving intricate calculus problems on Japanese television before his fifth birthday. That kind of makes you want to go out and peel a bumper sticker off your car, doesn't it? <laughs> actually, folks, my name actually should have gone on this list. Yeah, because more than one teacher said to me while I was growing up, Kenny, you're such a know-it-all. Um, Well, seriously, the young boys I've referenced here are amazingly gifted children, but their stunning abilities fade into insignificance in comparison to the boy, Jesus of Nazareth. After all, Colossians 1.15 and following reveals that he is the image of the invisible God, the reflection of the invisible God. For by him, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him. All things hold together. So no human prodigy and no measurable IQ could even come close to Christ. And yet he came into the world in such an ordinary way. The creator God came in this disarming disguise of a regular human baby. Although the lyrics to Away in a Manger say, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I doubt that. He had to be nursed or he would cry. And his diaper had to be changed. And he had to be wrapped up in cloths to keep warm. And contrary to the imagination of artists who painted him, there was no halo around his head. There was no extraterrestrial glow about him. As a boy, he played outside. He probably got dirty, even got hurt. My guess is, more than once, he tried Mary's patience. And he might not have fussed with his brothers and sisters, but I'll bet his brothers and sisters fussed with him growing up. 
What do we know about Jesus as a child, as a boy? Well, we know he was without sin. It's not an exaggeration to say that he was perfect. Never did he disobey his parents. Never did he talk dirty to his friends. Never did he lust. How do we know this? Well, because Scripture says he was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. We have a high priest, that is Jesus, who was tempted in every way we are, but did not sin. You see, it's our nature to be like our father, Adam, but it was his nature to be like his father, God. And because he lived a sinless life, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Let's take a look at what the Bible says, first of all, about Jesus as a child. It says Jesus grew as a child. Now, Patrick's already read the verse for you, but look at it again. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, earlier in Luke 2, we can read about everything that was required by the law of the Lord. We know that eight days after he was born, Jesus was circumcised. We know that 33 days after his circumcision, that was a period of time for the mother's purification required by Jewish law, Jesus' parents took him to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him. And you remember, they gave a thank offering of two doves instead of a lamb probably because they were poor. And Jesus would later identify with the poor because his own family had been poor. Then in the temple, a man named Simeon, a woman named Anna, both were advanced in age, but faithful in prayer. They encountered Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, and they immediately recognized that Jesus was a special child. And they spoke prophetic words about Jesus becoming the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then, after that, there was the visitation by the wise men, or the magi, Persian philosophers, astrologers. They found Jesus when he was actually somewhere between six months old and 20 months old. And they had caused quite a stir in Jerusalem with the talk about the birth of a new king. So, paranoid King Herod ordered that all the male children two years and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem would be killed. But Joseph had been warned in a dream to take his family and escape to Egypt. And upon Herod's death, an angel appeared to Joseph to tell him it was safe to return home. So Joseph and Mary traveled back through Judea to Galilee and settled in Mary's hometown of Nazareth. But other than these early incidents... The life of Jesus, his childhood, was probably pretty normal. And that's why it's called the quiet years. There really wasn't much to tell about those years. Luke's summary statement about Jesus' childhood is, the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Well, then what does the Bible say about Jesus as a boy. That's Jesus as a child. What about Jesus as a boy? Well, it tells us that Jesus grew as a boy. He grew as a child. He grew as a boy. Verse 41, chapter 2. 
Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew, there it is, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now this passage reveals a single incident in which Jesus gave his parents a real scare. <laughs> is there anything more frightening for a parent than to lose track of your child in a huge crowd. And some of us have been there. It wasn't a huge crowd, but I remember leaving our 12-year-old daughter at a restaurant once. She was in the restroom. We thought she was in one of the other cars, and, and we left. 30 minutes later, we arrived at our destination. We started counting noses, and Carissa was not in the group, and it was before cell phones. Well, I knew she was back at the restaurant, so I turned around and went back. Well, 30 minutes out, 30 minutes back, and my 12-year-old daughter was standing out in front of the restaurant <laughs> like this. <laughs> well, it's a panicked feeling. It is a, it's a panicked feeling when you lose track of a child. Well, this is how it went down. Jesus was 12 years old when his family and friends made the trip to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's a distance of about 65 miles, but it's over rugged, hilly terrain. And, and this was an important year for Jesus to go to Passover because the following year when he turned 13, he would become what's called a son of the law. So 12-year-old boys were given quite a lot of attention because they were on the brink of Jewish manhood. So it was understandable that Jesus was in the temple on this trip. And typically when families traveled in those days, they traveled together, and they traveled on foot, and they put the children in front, and then the women in the middle, and the men would bring up the rear. Well, Mary and Joseph started for home. Both of them assumed that Jesus was in their larger group somewhere. I think Joseph probably thought that Jesus was in front, walking ahead with the other children. Mary might have thought that Jesus was with Joseph, coming along behind with the men. But whatever the reason, at the end of the first day of travel, they discovered Jesus was missing. 
And Luke said it was a total of three days before they found him. So think about it. It's a, a day's travel. The end of that day, they discovered he's missing. The next day, they have to travel back, and then they spend a day looking for him, and they find him in the temple where he had become the center of attention. And the teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when Mary found him, she was understandably distressed. Her fear and her fatigue, she probably hadn't slept in a couple or three nights. Her fear and fatigue gave way to frustration. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. For just a moment, she temporarily forgot who Jesus was, and he reminded her he had a mission. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, that is a profound statement. This is the first time in his life, age 12, that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Still, he went back to Nazareth and was obedient to his parents. And we read in Luke 2.52 summary words, very much like those that we read in Luke 2.40. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Okay. So Jesus grew as a child. He grew as a boy. That's all well and good. Pastor, thanks for paraphrasing the Scripture, reading the Scripture for us this morning. Now, what are the life lessons for me I need to take away from this section of Scripture? What can we learn from this snapshot of Jesus as a boy? What can we get that will benefit us from these quiet years? I want to mention three. And the first is the value of the family. In this passage, we see a very human picture of the family of Jesus. Mary and Joseph were deeply devoted to God, but they were also fairly typical, quite common as parents in many ways, in the sense that they were imperfect. Joseph was not perfect. Mary was not perfect. And as parents, they made mistakes. Parents sometimes get separated from their kids. And when they find their kids, they're both relieved and a little bit miffed when they find them. So you and I can identify with this family, can't we? They had some of the same unpleasant issues that we have to deal with. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus had a normal childhood. He had to gain knowledge. He had to progress through life passages. He had to apply himself to learn about the world, to learn about his heavenly Father, to learn about people. He had to grow. And he did it in the context of a family. God ordained the imperfect family as the fundamental small group to nurture us in our quest to reflect his character, to see Christ formed in us. And here's my concern. I don't think the family is valued as much as it should be today. With every passing year, there's more and more erosion. And the more we devalue what God values, the deeper we are sinking into the quicksand of self-destruction. What can I say this morning to encourage you to value your family as much as God does? To take seriously your role as a husband, as a wife, as a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a grandfather, grandmother, to take it 
more seriously than you ever have before in your life. What can I say today? To motivate you to fight for your family, wherever you find yourself placed in a family today, they will be your blood until you die. Don't waste a single year. Don't waste a single month, week. Don't even waste a day. Read books. Read magazine articles. Listen to podcasts. Attend worship faithfully when there are messages that focus on the family. Attend events. Invest in the health of your family. If you need to seek forgiveness, do it. If you need to forgive, do it. If you need to confess, do it. If you need to comfort, do it. If you need to repent, do it. If you need to restore, do it. Change something. Change your mind. Change your disposition. Change your schedule. Change your habits. Change your vocabulary. Change your behavior. Whatever you have to do, soften your heart and harden your resolve that you will do anything. You will do everything in your power to protect and preserve and provide for your family. So your family is imperfect. So what? So is the family of Jesus. So your family is fractured. So what? Start from where you are today and build it up. Brick upon brick upon brick. Take it forward in the power and the presence and the partnership of the God who ordained the family and values the family. And get your family in his family. The church... Get over whatever negative prejudices or bad experiences you've had in your past. Without the church, you are without Jesus. Do not deceive yourself about that. He is coming for his church. If you're not in it, you cannot be in the will of Christ. It is his body. It is his living presence on the earth until we die or until he returns. So start today. Start now. Especially you young families in just a few weeks, we'll have our baby dedication and parent commitment weekend. It's in your bulletin, January the 9th and 10th. I want to challenge you to draw a big circle around that. If you've had a child within the last year or so, or since we last had a baby dedication and parent commitment weekend, that would be a great time to start. Value your family. Second takeaway this morning is an awareness of the fatherhood of God. In this passage, for the first time, Jesus introduced the world to God as a father who desires to be with us, a father who is present, a creator God, who wants us to relate to him as Abba or Daddy. Do you understand how absolutely radical this is. In the 39 books of the Old Testament, only 14 times is God called a father, and then it's never in the personal sense. But when Jesus is 12, in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he called God my father, and he never used any other term for God. It was his trademark. It was a trademark of his ministry. 
And he taught his disciples. He taught us to pray. Our Father, it is distinctive to the Christian faith. Listen, there are 279 names for God that are associated with different religions, from Allah of the Arabic culture to Zeus of Greek mythology. Not one, not a single one of 279 names revealed to God who has a heart for his people. Only one reveals God whose name is Father, and that is the religion of Jesus. So as chosen adopted sons and daughters of God as a child of the Heavenly Father. Can you see it for the first time this Christmas? He loves you. He wants to be with you. He could have remained aloof. He could have distanced himself from human pain and suffering. He didn't do it. He came for you and me. And again and again, Jesus demonstrated that he wanted to be with people, and he wanted his people to be with him, to the people on the cross. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. The last recorded prayer of Jesus before his death on the cross was John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. When Jesus chose the disciples, the word says he went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him that they might be with him. I know I'm talking to someone today who is far from God for one reason or another. Some of you had a dad who tainted your idea about what a father is or what a father should be. Don't let that influence your perception of your heavenly father. I know I'm talking this morning to someone who was once close to, to God their heavenly father, but have forsaken him. Listen, he is a faithful father who will never leave us or forsake us, but he will allow us to hold him at arm's length for a lifetime or to walk away from him willfully. Don't do it. Don't do it. Come home to your father's house. Begin or begin again to be about your father's business this Christmas. One more thing today for you to take home. A greater dedication to your family, a greater devotion to your father, and lastly, a determination to grow. Jesus grew in four areas of life as revealed in our text. He grew intellectually. He grew in wisdom, it says. He grew in stature. He grew physically. He grew spiritually in favor with God, and he grew socially, in favor with man. He grew intellectually, physically, spiritually, socially. So, today, as you sit straight up in worship on this last weekend before Christmas, I want you to check your tanks. I want you to check your levels in these four areas. The word here for grow is to advance. So I want to ask you this morning, are you advancing? Are you advancing in these four areas? Are you advancing intellectually? What are you reading? What are you watching? What do you find yourself thinking about? How are you doing in school? 
How are you doing on the job? I'm telling you, if you're reading the wrong stuff, if you're watching the wrong stuff, if you're thinking about the wrong stuff, if you're failing to apply yourself in school or learning on the job, you are not advancing. Keep advancing as long as you live. Keep growing. Love God with your mind. What about physically? What are you eating? How much are you eating? And I feel a little bit like a hypocrite because I ate two caramel flipovers for breakfast this morning. <laughs> Are you moving? Are you active? Are you monitoring your health? Are you in condition? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you working too much? In short, are you advancing or are you retreating? Are you losing ground physically? Spiritually, what about that tank? Do you have a daily quiet time? Do you worship God in private as well as in community? Are you walking in obedience and in devotion day by day? Does your stewardship of your coined life reflect your professed godly priorities? Does your investment in building God's kingdom reflect your spiritual heart? I'm asking you, are you advancing? Are you constantly moving up to higher spiritual ground? Or are you stuck? Are you dry? Last tank, socially. Are you serving others in your heavenly Father's name? Are you in some kind of small group community? Or are you spending more time each year behind closed doors, walling yourself off from real people with real needs? Or are you advancing as a servant and as a witness for God with your life, with your lips? Listen, if growth was vital to Jesus as a child, if growth was vital to Jesus as a boy, should we not have a conscience about advancing. I'm reading a book right now that's rocking my world by Stuart and Jill Briscoe. It's called Improving with Age. I'm committed to that. I'm committed to growing as long as I live, advancing as long as I live. Folks, Let's be done with lesser things in 2016. Let's be done with lesser things and let's start to value our family like we never have before. And let's commit ourselves to enjoy our Heavenly Father more than we ever have before. And let's recover our commitment to grow, to advance, to live higher and deeper than ever before this Christmas and in the new year. Will you stand with me for prayer? Lord, I love what is written in your word, the truths that are there. Some of them just stated so succinctly, so simply, so directly, they cannot be missed. And others that are woven into the text we can read them between the lines. And Father, we thank you for what 
you reveal to us as you speak to us through your word and through our open ears, our open hearts, our tender consciences. Lord, we surrender our lives to your loving lordship for our good and for the good of those that we will touch as we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.